0: Listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, sex and relationship advice you can use tonight.
1: Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm Jessica O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. Before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to At Desire Resorts for their support. I'm heading to Desire in October and January. It's a clothing-optional environment with two locations on the Mayan Riviera. Check them out at Desire Resorts. As you know, if you've tuned in before, my partner, the love of my life, Brandon, often joins me for these podcasts. And moving forward, Brandon is going to be on the air for almost every episode, if I can pin him down because you folks seem to like him and I really like him too. And I find that I'm more myself. I'm more calm. I'm ultimately better at my job when he's next to me for a number of reasons, including the fact that it's actually really tough (laughs) to be a woman in the public eye and having a man by your side means that you receive less harassment, less vitriol, and fewer dick pics. Um, But also, he's just a really funny, empathetic, insightful person. And he brings a perspective as a non-sexuality, non-relationship professional that that I just don't offer. So I was hoping that Brandon would be here today. But I'm in Atlanta for Sex Down South, and he's in Toronto doing his business thing, so he couldn't be here. But Brandon is the inspiration for this episode. Uh, He's excited to be a part of the podcast, so he says, but he's mentioned that he's nervous because talking about sex and relationships and gender can feel really stressful for him because of all the new terminology. So he's kind of afraid to use the wrong words. So here's, here's what Brandon has to say on the topic with apologies that he's not live with us right now.
0: I know that it's my job to educate myself on the proper use of pronouns when I'm identifying somebody, whether it's transgender, lesbian, gay, straight, uh, queer, bi. It's my job, I understand that. But I didn't grow up around a lot of people who identified uh, other than their visible gender. Um, Even right now, I'm already thinking about things. I'm like, how should I say this? And I don't want to be rude or um, insensitive in conversation with other people. And until we all adopt the use of they, my question is, how do I go about demonstrating my willingness to use the appropriate terms, but if I make a mistake, not making a big deal out of it, being Um, apologetic for the mistake because I do find that in certain environments I'm afraid to contribute for fear of saying the wrong thing. And that may sound really, really silly but it's the truth. I'm just afraid of using the wrong thing and then looking like an idiot or looking like I'm not sympathetic, and then if I do apologize, am I making too big of a deal out of it? And I just want to make sure that I'm being as inclusive as I can, while being uh, very sensitive to the the identifiers of those people around me.
1: So even though Brandon can't be here today, we're going to be talking about this topic and defining a number of sexuality and gender-related terms so that Brandon, and you, the listener, can become more familiar and comfortable with new and evolving language that is really essential to communication, to respect, and really to fundamental human rights. Joining me today is Ida Mandalay, award-winning activist known for big earrings and building bridges. Y'all can't see her, and (laughs) I'm not supposed to break that third wall, but these are some big strawberry earrings.
2: They're fruity. they're juicy, and they're beautiful. Yeah, they really
1: are beautiful. Um, Latinx sex educator and therapist innovating with the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, JP Meeting Point, and the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health. Thank you for being here. Excited, to. Now, you're a really, really bright person. When I told Brandon I was going to be interviewing you, the way I described you was super smart, way smarter than me, <laughs> highly articulate. Brandon seems to think I'm the smartest person in the world. So he was like, whoa, um, I've got that, you know, like a six-year-old. I've six got him in six, six-year-old <laughs> phase where they yeah. still think you're so smart. I've been keeping him stringing, stringing along there for <laughs> 17 years. So I don't think that Brandon is alone in being nervous but well-intentioned, eager to learn, And now that he's on the podcast more, but just in real life, people are nervous that they're going to say the wrong thing
2: Mm -hmm. or
1: use an outdated term. I know Brandon, for one, who's a people pleaser, is really concerned about being tried in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. And I've told him that the onus is on, it's on him to learn and do the research and even practice. And I know he's been doing this, but I would like to today provide at least an introductory guide for listeners who want to better understand all these terms that weren't around when they were growing up, mm-hmm. weren't around when they were in high school, weren't even around five or 10 years ago right, right, in popular, popular use. So I think we'll start with the basics. We'll start with LGBTQ plus, LGBTQA plus, perhaps. So let's let's go with LGBTQ to begin with.
2: Yeah, for sure. So uh, also to to kind of preface this, it's really important to know these diverse acronyms and these names. And one of the things I want to make sure to talk about, too, though, is the importance of not feeling like you have to memorize every single word to perfection, because that drive for perfection is actually what messes a lot of us up, especially those of us who might be very well intentioned and excited and just don't want to hurt people. Um it's more important to yes, educate yourself on an ongoing basis and, and learn, you know, as many terms as you can certainly, and also just be willing to be corrected, be willing to be wrong, grow comfortable with the mess up. The repair is actually what's most important than never make, never making a mistake because we're going to make a mistake. And if we don't have the resilience and the skills to fix it, that's when we get, in, that's when we actually get in trouble. Um, and that's when I see a lot more pain happen. Um, because we're all going to mess up at some point, right? So in terms of the acronym, um, LGTBQ, LGBTQ, however you want to spell it, sometimes it has a plus at the end, sometimes it has an IA at the end. Um, it's an acronym that stands for a lot of different identities kind of all smooshed together. Um, so we have lesbian, we have bi or bisexual, we have gay, um, we have queer. Sometimes people use questioning as well. Particularly if you're seeing or working with youth, that Q sometimes gets duplicated so that you have questioning in there as well. um, but you know adults can be questioning too let's not say that that's just a youth issue Um, and a lot of these terms are terms for sexual orientation Um, the one that's different in there is trans or transgender because that's not a term around sexual orientation that's a term for gender identity which is separate but related to the other labels that are in the in the spectrum in that acronym
1: so why don't we start with trans then? So transgender as a term, it's transgender, not transgendered, mm-hmm. because we don't say mailed yeah. or femaled. And uh, I had some teachers I was training who kept saying transgendered, and I kind of kept reminding that it was transgender.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not the end of the world to make a mistake once or twice. I do it. Yeah. Right? We, We're all
2: going to do it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Exactly. So let's talk about what trans means, transgender.
2: Yeah. So, trans is a word that's seen a lot of evolution over the years. And particularly nowadays, a lot of folks are just using the shortened version trans to even be more inclusive and sometimes not specify so that people can find themselves within that word however they want. So, we have another term that's more outdated, very tied to the medical sort of industry uh, of transsexual. And that's a word that some people still use and feel that it's important to them, particularly if they're seeking any kind of medical transition, whether that's hormones or surgery, anything like that. Um, You'll find some older folks using it because again, that was the term that was more common. That was the term that you had to adopt in order to get the treatment that you needed, right? And so now what we're seeing is that as a lot of people have spoken up, we have a lot more information about trans identities and trans people. There's a little bit of a loosening of some of the requirements to be to quote unquote be trans. So that's also why you'll see a lot of older people who maybe adhered to gender roles in a way that some people didn't agree with. Um, there's some people are like, oh, this, you know, why is this trans woman so feminine? That's, we didn't fight for women to have to be wearing pink dresses all the time. That's like the Caitlyn Jenner story. Mm-hmm. So there, I
1: remember an article coming out from a cis white woman talking about how Caitlyn Jenner isn't her type of woman, Mm -hmm. because Caitlyn Jenner's first images were, I think, in tight, tight pants or skirts Mm -hmm. and corsets, and that's not what a regular woman wears. And Mm -hmm. this woman said, a regular woman, you know, a a woman that all the women I know are walking around in yoga pants. First of all, those aren't yoga (laughs) pants. Let's just go back to the East and talk about what people actually wear and wore to practice yoga. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this sexy stuff we're wearing today yeah. that holds in the belly and lifts the, the buttocks and all these other things that they do. I, I, I'm being critical here because I hate pants. <laughs> I'm not wearing pants now.
2: <laughs> I support that. I support the no pants club.
1: <laughs> it's like a once a year thing where I wear pants. So, but anyhow, this, this writer was saying that that that's not what a woman is. That's a hypersexualized version mm-hmm. of a woman. And the truth is you're more likely to find me in a short skirt, maybe not a corset, mm-hmm. but then yoga pants, because women, whether they're trans or cis or consider themselves femme or not, can wear whatever the hell right they want to wear. So I, I interrupted yeah. you, but that, that it's an interesting, um, I, I think, evolution of what trans can be, because right. you can transition... Say, for instance, you're assigned male at birth and you trans transition to female
2: and y'all don't have to wear corsets, but you can. Right. Exactly. It's a part of it's about choice and part of it, you know, is about learning the history of how not just these terms evolved, but how they were used and who was using them. So the reason that so many older trans people had to maybe be a quote-unquote hyper version of a gender is because if they didn't, they wouldn't get the care that they deserved. They wouldn't get medical care. They would have to jump through a thousand hoops to get even the even decent health care, regardless of if it was gender-related or not. So I'm not saying that any of these folks, uh, their gender was performed in a fake way, but that there were social constraints around how they could perform their gender if they wanted to be safe, if they wanted to get access to care. And so now there's still a lot of barriers to trans care. I, you know, As a therapist and an educator, I have to work with a lot of clients where they're struggling real hard with the systems and with all the paperwork that they have to provide if they want any kind of particularly medical care um, or to change their IDs or to change their driver's licenses. And so you know, transgender or trans, if we want to define it, Kind of in its most broad in its most broad way, is someone whose gender currently is not the same as they were assigned at birth, Um, and I say gender, not sex, though some people might say sex assigned at birth, because honestly, what we assign when someone's born is often gender. We usually don't say, ah, a female was born, a (laughs) male was born. You know, a doctor might say that, but most commonly, people say, oh, it's a boy, it's a girl. Gender reveal parties are, are all the rage, and it's like, it's a boy, it's a girl, and and. There's a lot of reasons for that, including cultural ones, that there can be baggage or excitement around having a particularly gendered child. Um, and, you know, those parties are are kind of a problem too in terms of what expectations they place on a child and, and the family. So, you know, if we want to think about trans identities, it's really important to know why they have been the way they have been throughout history and why today we also have a lot of new terms evolving. And, and I think that that's really interesting and beautiful, there's a lot of resistance from some people around, oh, these are all newfangled terms. I'm like, well, words, <laughs> you know, we didn't just get a set of words from birth that and never will they change again. And so. if you
1: can integrate Google. Right. <laughs>
2: right. You use Google. Yeah. then Calm down.
1: <laughs> exactly. Google wasn't a word, I don't think. Mm-hmm, no. I don't know the etymology of Google. <laughs> but there is a lot of language that has evolved in my short time on this planet Mm -hmm. well not that short anymore my middle time on this planet these words didn't exist and i've been able to integrate google as hard as it's been Mm -hmm. into my dictionary and sometimes people say oh it's really hard and I always remind them of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. If you can say Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can do anything right. when it comes to <laughs> language, right? You see this with Asian names or Indian names, like white teachers saying, oh, it's so hard to pronounce. You can say Arnold Schwarzenegger.
2: Mm-hmm. That's one of the
1: hardest words to say. Yeah, You can say, you can say a lot of words yeah. if you want to. Yeah. So uh, in terms of offensive language, once in a while, uh, I, I see people still tossing around language like tranny. Mm-hmm. Those are words that are hurtful. Yeah. And that it's, you know, it's time to eliminate from our vocabulary. So the appropriate language is trans. Um, somebody who feels they're a gender that they weren't assigned at birth. And then the opposite of that, of that mm-hmm. would be cis. Yeah, cisgender. So when people say cis female or cis male, can you just clarify what that means? Because I know people struggle. I know, I know Brandon, for instance, has asked me several mm-hmm. times.
2: Yeah. So if you're cis, you're someone who, you know, when you were born, someone said, it's a boy, it's a girl, and you still feel pretty chill about that designation. You maybe haven't, you know, you don't feel like you need any kind of medical transition process. You don't feel like you need to change gendered aspects to such a degree that means you're not a woman or not a man or not what you were assigned at birth. And that's about it. So some people, you know, feel upset about being called cisgender. They feel like it's a slur, which you know I can understand if there's a word that you don't know and being called that that might be scary but also it's fine. It's, it's not, it's not actually a slur. Um, It's a word being used to try to balance out the playing field a little bit. So it's not, oh, trans people and the regular people, the normal people. So cisgender is just a word to designate someone whose gender identity is the same as that, as it was when they were born, or that it's not so significantly different that they need another word or another identity. So part of what's happening too, right, is that some people who are presumed to be cisgender are actually questioning. And sometimes that's, a little bit of what freaks them out to be called cisgender but then you know it's a question of what label would you want to use and why are you it's important to interrogate if we're feeling really uncomfortable with a word being used for us what's what's why right sometimes white people are upset to be called white i'm curious why is that feeling what about whiteness is upsetting you and let's talk about what's upsetting about whiteness. I'd, have, I'd love to have that conversation with you.
1: Well, I, I think it's partly a matter of privilege, of being the norm. And so, mm-hmm. so I come from a, a Jamaican background where race is something we, we talk about. Um, and we just, we call it what it is. Mm-hmm. Like everything that's observable to us, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I know that what, when I was younger and would say something like, oh, white people, white people, white people would get all uncomfortable mm-hmm. But I think that has to do also with like the this desire to be post-racial,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and this notion that there's a color blindness which does not exist. Yeah. Like, you can't be colorblind. Do you yeah. see like color? You,
2: you can be colorblind if you have a medical condition, which means that there are certain colors that you do not actually see. Yeah. Unless that's the case, then no, you can definitely see race. Come on.
1: And most of those people can see race. Right. Because, like, like Brandon, for instance, is actually colorblind. Mm-hmm. But he can only not see certain shades of green right. and gray. And there are no green people. Yeah. I hate when people say, like, I I love all people. if They're black, white, blue, purple. No, yeah. there's no purple. <laughs> They're purple people eaters, Yeah, but they're no different. purple people. That's different. That's okay because it rhymes and it's in a song. <laughs> but yes. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about gender identity versus mm-hmm. sexual orientation. So within that LGBTQ, all those letters with the exception, exception of T tend to refer to sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So sexual orientation refers to what?
2: Sexual orientation is the attraction or desire on a sexual level that people have For other people. Um, So, sexual orientation can also mean, hey, I don't actually have a sexual attraction. And there's a word for that too. So, you have asexual for someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction to others or primarily doesn't. Um, And there's a lot, again, there's a lot of language to nuance that idea. So, you have asexual, you can also be on the asexual spectrum or the gray spectrum, which all you know, really talk about the varieties of how sexual attraction works for people. Um, So what we're seeing a lot today with terminology around this is that it's getting more and more specific. Now, again, that's one of those things that some people have resistance to. They're like, oh, are people just trying to be special? Are people trying to dig, you know, make something too complicated? And, you know, sure, maybe there's the one person who wants to do that, but mostly people are just trying to define themselves and be be clear, right? And I think it's really fascinating and beautiful that we can move and morph language to better reflect our realities, better reflect our inner worlds. And the more words we have, yes, maybe the more complex because the more choices we have, but then the more, the more we can get close to who we truly are in any given moment. So to me, this explosion of gender terms or gender pronouns or wording is actually very heartening and hopeful because it means that people are being creative they're trying to explore themselves and name things in ways that maybe they didn't feel like they could before um And that, to me, that's beautiful. And it does still, you know, make me nervous. Like, oh, God, there's so many terms. I have to make sure that I keep up with them.
1: Especially as an expert.
2: Exactly, exactly. If someone, you know, if I'm someone that gets hired to talk about this, I should be keeping a pulse on what's going on, right? Um, So sexual orientation, that's what it refers to. Um, Historically, when we've talked about sexual orientation, we were also lumping in romantic interest in there, too. Um, So if we talk about, let's say, a lesbian, usually we don't mean to say, oh, a woman who only likes to have sex with women, we would assume that there's also some kind of romantic component or partnership there um, because otherwise we're just reducing it to, to sex and that has some social implications. But now we also have the word for romantic orientation or aesthetic orientation. And so we can actually be a little bit more specific. So if you're talking with someone just on the street, when they say sexual orientation, they probably mean this like bundle of things. So sexual attraction, romantic attraction, et cetera. But if you're talking to someone who has a deeper level of language and specificity, they could be talking only about the sexual attraction. Um, so that's an important thing when you're trying to figure out what words to use. Where are you? what is the level of gender and terminology that's present there usually and how can you work with that rather than going with the most broad or the most specific term so context matters a lot
1: and so if, if sexual orientation generally refers to attraction mm-hmm. and romantic attraction might be bundled in there uh, what about gender identity
2: so gender identity is a person's internal sense of what gender they are there's really no definition of this term that isn't a little bit circular right so we're using the term to define the term itself um and there's a reason for that we don't exactly know how gender identity is formed um so we've talked about gender and gender has a lot of different components so gender has the external component components of performance where it's you know how you talk how you dress what you know what kind of words you use even and it's all about how you present that to the world. And gender identity refers to the internal piece of it, how you see yourself, what you understand yourself to be. And science is still trying to figure out where some of these things come from and how they develop. And there's a lot of really interesting science out there, but we don't have a definitive answer. And frankly, I don't think we ever will.
1: No, because even if we find that something occurs in 99.9% of cases, an outlier is nonetheless valid for that individual. Right. Right. So if you experience something that is different, it's like medication Mm -hmm. can work in a specific way 99.9% of the time. But if you have a specific reaction, we don't say, oh, no, that doesn't count. Yeah. If you have a a reaction, if you have a feeling, if you have an experience, it's perfectly valid.
2: Right. And I mean, many roads can lead to Rome. So... For some people, it's been really important historically to argue that you are born this way because that's tied to a lot of rights. It's tied to a lot of legislation. A lot of people don't get the care and respect they need and the dignity they deserve if it's seen as a choice. So we've gone real hard on the language of we're born this way, we're born this way. And I'm sure that some of us are, and that's unchangeable. However, I think it's also possible, from what I've seen and from what I know, that some of us may choose this and some of us may expand our our desires in ways that are not just about DNA. Because also what we do know and have abundant evidence for is that our DNA and our the way that our bodies work changes with experience and changes with time. We're not just born with a molecular structure that then does not have any input from the environment. So the whole nature versus nurture is a little bit BS. It's both. It's always going to be both
1: even even the brain we're learning is more mm-hmm. plastic than we ever realized and those those essentialist are arguments especially around um being gay I think we're really just tied to a heated climate of homophobia that mm-hmm. hopefully over time is on the decline and we can not worry about whether it's essential whether mm-hmm. it's nature or nurture and as you said there's always going to be a mix right uh, of the two so if it with gender identity, I want to talk about a couple of terms. I want to talk about gender fluid, gender non-conforming, mm-hmm. and gender queer. Yes. And what those terms mean. Because especially if you have um, younger people in your household or in your life, you're going to hear this type of language.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And with a lot of these, they're still evolving, which is, I think, you know, right on back to, hmm. hey, things are going to change. We're going to adapt and evolve. Don't get too caught up with learning the, the textbook definition right now. Just have a basic understanding of what it is. Be open to changing your mind. And that's like the biggest advice I have pretty much for anything. Be open to changing your mind and being challenged. So gender fluid usually refers to someone whose gender it says it on the tin, is fluid, right? So this person might use gender fluid to refer to their gender expression or identity is another thing. So some of these terms, depending on how people use them, can refer to their external presentation and or their internal sense of their gender. So someone might consider themselves gender nonconforming if... Generally, their, their external appearance does not conform to what their society or their culture expects for the gender that they are or the gender that they're seen as. Um, so you may have people who are to themselves cisgender identified or they're like, you know, I'm, I was told I was a girl when I was little. I still feel like a girl. I just wear very masculine clothing and that feels good. I'm still a woman, um, but maybe I'm a gender nonconforming woman because I'm not seen as quote unquote a very particular kind of woman so gender non-conforming often is is about external appearance not exclusively right um gender fluid again is about someone who has a little bit more fluidity you might see them in a you know a very particular kind of gender presentation one day different kind of presentation another for some people if it's an internal sense of gender it's how they feel about themselves will maybe be different. So one day they might feel more like a man. Some day they might feel more like a woman. And that's still very binary, right? I'm just keeping it a little basic. But the fluidity of gender is the the crux of that. Um, gender queer is a term that is pretty expansive and also variable. Um, so gender queer is one that I use for myself. Um, and basically, it holds a lot of the same pros and and helpful bits as queer does for sexuality. Um, so when you say you're queer. It basically says, I'm not straight, but I'm not explaining a ton about what it is. Sometimes that means that you get to have a bigger conversation and and have more room to play in. Um, And so similarly, folks who are genderqueer um, usually identify as outside the realm of male or female or man or woman. Maybe it's a combination. Basically, it's a, hey, it's more complicated than that. Uh, statement. It's, like for, it's, for the, it's
1: complicated on Facebook, yeah. <laughs> relationships. I've yeah. always, I've always liked the term queer and I came of age and I studied sexual diversity studies actually in undergrad. That was my major. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing in Canada. <laughs> and uh, no clue that I would go into this field in the way that I have. But I remember that even writing papers at the time, if you did want to use the word queer, mm-hmm. you'd have to put a footnote as to how you were reclaiming that term. Yeah. That has shifted yeah. since the 70s when I went to school. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> since that time, it's it, it shifted. And I think gender queer is also a really interesting one because to me what queer means when I say I'm queer is that it's none of your business, <laughs> right? And that, yeah. that's my right. Mm-hmm. I have no obligation to explain anything yeah. to anybody. I mean, as a public figure, I do talk a little bit about yeah. my life now, uh, mostly just on this podcast, not anywhere else. But I also have the right not to. Right, right, and I'm very lucky with listeners. Like, I'll give a little bit of information, and also say I have this story. Here's the lesson, but I can't tell you the whole story yeah. because I want part of my life to be private. Yeah, right. And so with, with genderqueer, I wonder if people use it in a in a similar fashion.
2: Some people definitely do. Some people definitely do, and that's the thing. Again, a lot of these terms people often use more than one to describe themselves. So that's another that's another common difference. Um, if you're someone who's cisgender. You probably haven't had to think a lot about your gender. Um, maybe you haven't had dysphoria around gender specifically. That's pretty common if you're cisgender um, to not have that that experience. Though dysphoria is not the the requirement for being trans. That is a requirement if you want to have a diagnosis um, of of gender dysphoria. But you can be trans without having had any kind of dysphoria. Um, but also dysphoria is really is really common given the society that we live in. So. For, for a lot of the way that these terms are used, it's usually in a little bit of a package, right? So someone might identify as trans. They also might identify as genderqueer. It's kind of whatever mix makes, makes sense for that person. Um, and what I, what I encourage people to have is, again, an open mind and curiosity, right? Not invasive curiosity, but a curiosity that remains in, in conversation uh, to know that, hey, we're using this language, I might not know the full extent of how you're using it. And maybe it's time to ask, and maybe it's not. But I I can't presume to know the full full story just by knowing you for five minutes and even knowing you for 20 years.
1: Well, you bring up something interesting, and that's about how much you should ask Mm -hmm. of somebody. So nobody really wants to be asked about their genitalia, generally, Mm -hmm. unless you're very, very close. Yeah.
2: It's like, are we going to have sex imminently? Then maybe we can talk about my genitals. Exactly.
1: People don't tend to want to be asked uh, about what they do sexually, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So when is it appropriate to ask? When and how do you ask about pronouns? Mm -hmm. Um, What do you do when you misgender? Because it, it happens to all of us. Yeah. Um, we make assumptions. Like I can look at you and say, you look femme to me. Yeah. That may not be the way you're looking to express yourself. Right. But it might be how I interpret it. So when do we ask? How do we ask? How do we make sure
2: that we're being respectful but um, but not invasive? Yeah, great questions. For me, the first thing to consider is context. Where are you? Are you in line at the grocery store (laughs) seeing a person who you think is trans? That's certainly not the time to ask them about pronouns or their genitals. It's probably not the time to talk to them at all. Um, (laughs) But if you're a doctor or medical provider that's going to do a sexual assault examination kit or you're a doctor who's going to do an STI test, yeah, then it makes a ton of sense to talk about a person's genitals. Um, And again, in that case, it's about asking without assumptions. Um, So, you know, I'll, I'll dial it back. If you're, if you're in a public place um, or if you're at a job where you're not supposed to generally be talking about genitals, just don't ask about genitals. <laughs> um, but asking about pronouns is really common and, and usually really important. If, you're, you know, if you're, it's back to school season for a lot of folks, some people are teachers or going into classrooms. Um, the way that ask that I would suggest is it, making space for people to share their pronouns but not requiring it. Um, then the reason I say not requiring it is because there are very good reasons for some folks to not want to share. Um, one of them is lack of trust that people will actually use their pronouns and preferring to not share it and just get pronouned, however, than sharing it and being very obviously misgendered. A lot of people will prefer to just, you know, let other people do whatever they're going to do because it hurts less. It feels less bad. If they just are ignorant, then if you shared yourself and told them what to do and they still didn't care or just didn't manage to do it correctly. Um, so the way that I would ask about that is, hey, you know, my pronouns are X, Y, Z or my pronouns are they, them. What are yours? Um If you're opening up a classroom or a session and doing kind of a go around with names, you can say, hey, I'm encouraging us to share things like name, pronouns, share as much or as little as you're comfortable with. So giving the element of choice is really valuable. Um, Also explaining what a pronoun is. So a lot of people, if you tell them pronoun, they're like, what, what?
1: Can we go back to grammar, please? Like, I don't, don't, what part of speech is that? They're no longer teaching it. Can we also teach about (laughs) gerunds and present participles while we're at it, please? Now, this is what you need, Brandon. Your writing is fabulous, but don't you want to know why it's who versus whom?
2: There you go. There you go. We're getting nerdy as hell in here. Um, yes. <laughs> direct and indirect. <laughs> it's like, what's, where's the object? Is it direct object? Yeah. Um, so if you're going to say pronoun, um, exp- usually helping explain it to folks is good. Um, so usually what I do is I'll, when, I, when I'm doing a presentation, I'll say, hey, you know, my name is Ida. My pronouns are they, them. And what that means is that if you're going to compliment my really nice boots, instead of saying her boots are great or his boots are great, you would say their boots are great. So I usually put humor in there. I'll usually use compliments to, to keep a, a positive and cute atmosphere. Um, and sometimes I'll just quiz people in the middle of a presentation, especially if it's about gender. I'll be like, hey, reminder, what's my what's my pronoun? And, and they'll have to kind of remember and keep using it in the session. So there are so many ways to ask. Uh, the main thing that I would say is, again, be open and... and Know your context. Um, don't make it a forced activity. Give people choice whether they share yeah. their pronouns or not. Um If you don't know how to use a pronoun that someone says, you can ask for clarification. Like, hey, I actually haven't heard that pronoun used before. Can you tell me a little bit more about how it would be used if I were referring to you? Like,
1: for example? Uh, Z is another example,
2: right? So Z, someone might just not know how to conjugate that. So Z uh, is Z-E. The other versions of it are here and here's, um, which is H-I-R or H-I-R-S. Some people also use Z and Zer. Okay. And so you'll, there's so many varieties of how these work that you can just ask for clarification. That's I think okay. fewer
1: people are using Z these days. Is that is that true? More people are using they, them?
2: I, I see a lot of people using they, them because it's easier, and we're actually all familiar with it.
1: We use they all the time. <gasps> we it all the time. Right. Like, if I say, oh, who's that on the phone, or what did they say on the phone?
2: Exactly. Right? I
1: don't know necessarily the gender. It is, it, it can be a challenge just from a language perspective to integrate they into the singular, but
2: it's doable. It's doable, and, and you're you already make doing mistakes, it.
1: Mm-hmm. And that, that's okay. What, what do you do when you make a mistake? I know I, I remember making a, a mistake Oh, it was a long time ago. It was before I was, I think I was an undergrad and I misgendered someone and I made this huge deal and kept <laughs> apologizing. And I'm like, I look back, I'm like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> but what, what do you do when you misgender?
2: Honestly, the best course of action, usually, right? Not 100% of the time, but usually, is just correct yourself, briefly apologize, and move on. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. Um, usually, making a big deal out of it is something that centers the person who made the mistake rather than the person who was harmed by the misgendering Mm -hmm. and it becomes this very performative thing and even if it's very earnest right most of us don't like to mess up in general most of us don't like to hurt people but if we just over explain and over you know oh my god i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i'm so sorry We're not actually helping that person. And it's very common for people to do that over explaining, especially if they have things like PTSD or anxiety or a variety of, you know, situations in their life or conditions where they were trained that they had to overly apologize. So you'll also see that a lot of times with folks that were raised as women they'll they'll be like oh god i have to i have to be very polite and very kind and this was rude so i have to fix it so there's a lot of reasons why people overexplain which is why i also you know when i'm working with other trans folks i also encourage us and help you know help us how to figure out okay how much overexplaining can i actually hold right there's a balance to all of this and there has to be space made for the fact that we're all carrying a lot of different stuff. We all have a lot of different baggage um, and it might not always be visible or readily apparent. So if you mess up, you know, explain it very quickly and, and be done. So, let's say that you use the pronouns they and I was saying oh yeah I met with Jess she was oh they they were great and then just keep talking right like you can make it very short if you're in front of someone else Um, if you're with the person you can sort of look at them or give or sort of move toward them be like sorry about that and then keep moving Um, if at any point you've noticed that you're doing it a lot with someone you're misgendering them a lot it might make sense to send them a message and say hey I've noticed that I've been doing this. my apologies i'll keep I'll keep working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be helpful for someone to know that you're trying and that you care and that you're noticing right because sometimes if we're in a space and getting misgendered a lot, we're like, do you even care? Do you notice what you're doing? What's going mm-hmm. on
1: and I think sometimes it just rolls off the tongue because yeah. we are raised in this gender binary, and so we see pe like everybody's gonna see me as a woman, yeah, pretty much uh, i mean i I also go by she and her, so it but if I didn't, yeah. Because there are people who look just like me. Well, mm-hmm. not just like me, but who are...
2: <laughs> Secret twins.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I love... I used to hear that all the time. They'd be like, oh, you look like Lucy Lou. Oh.
2: No, right, the racism twin. No, I don't. <laughs> not at all. Do you remember
1: Tia Carrera mm-hmm. from Waynesboro? No. Yeah. Not a... Th- I mean, Yikes. Lucy Liu. Not even close. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the racist <laughs> uh, But so so it's an apology and move on and yeah. make an effort. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what people want to know is that they're not going to be in big trouble yeah. when we make mistakes because it is new. Yeah. Like, and we always make like I was even saying the word fetishizing earlier Mm -hmm. and I was struggling with it yeah and some days I do some days I don't and that's life like we, we make mistakes
2: and don't be don't be married to having a particular kind of response from someone else too right so if if you hear me on this podcast saying hey apologize quickly move on show that you care but don't sort of hammer it in too aggressively and that doesn't work for you and someone gets upset it's not that the advice was bad it's that this in this particular interaction, that didn't work. Right? Advice so, was never bad, exactly. so their advice is perfect. <laughs> it's like, I'm perfect. Like, the, the, the advice itself can be useful, it's just nothing is ever 100%. Right. And so, you will have situations where, given the mix of identities or traumas or experiences, you may it might not work. Right. Some people do want you to to grovel and apologize very profusely. Maybe that's, now that's information that you have, right? So I'm a social worker. We're extremely strengths-based. So we're always looking at what's the positive, good thing about what happened. So if you have a situation where you do get, you know, scolded or someone is upset or someone's sad, that's now information that you have, which is amazing. Now you know that with this person, your way of interacting might have to be different. And rather than seeing it as, oh, I, I fucked up. I'm the worst person. See it as a growing opportunity. See it as now I know. Now I have information. How delightful
1: and you can I think you can practice too with pronouns yes and people might say like oh now I have to practice dude you practice lots of different things before we go on stage we practice before you go into a job interview you practice you Mm -hmm. may not stand in front of the mirror and talk about your strengths but you run over things you run over language in your mind and ruminate every single day so it really is doable now I want to kind of lightning through some of these other terms if you don't mind mm-hmm. um let's talk quickly about intersex
2: yeah so intersex is a name usually a medical term um for folks whose sex is not easily categorized as male or female or who have a certain number of conditions usually called disorders of sexual development and i say that with like uh, my squinty eyes because we can say differences of sexual development rather than, than disorders, and it's a more positive frame. So it's, it's usually for folks who are not as easily categorized, because what makes up sex is actually a bunch of things. A lot of people think, oh, it's genitals. It's not just genitals. You have genitals, you have secondary sex characteristics, like the fat distribution in your body, or where hair grows and how thick and how long. Um, you also have the, the way that your vocal cords are, you have a lot of different pieces that actually make up those secondary sex characteristics that are influenced by hormones. So you also have hormone levels, you have your chromosomes, you have, you know, internal and gen- external and general appearance. There's just so much that actually goes into sex that we don't actually just have male or female. We've done that designation to make it very simplified, but sex is way more complex than that. So just because you have a lot of people that fit into the, okay, you have this type of chromosome setup, you have this kind of genital setup, you have this kind of hormonal setup, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that exists. Um, And in fact, you have a lot of people who have, you know, most of the kit, you know, most of that normative kit and then there's one outlier. Um, so for example, you'll have folks with a with a hormonal condition that makes their appearance look very different than might, what might be expected for their sex or gender, um, but it's a hormonal issue. And so intersex is for any of that variation that makes it a little bit harder to categorize. Um, and one thing to know about intersex folks is that often uh, as opposed to trans people who are often fighting for procedures that they want, a lot of intersex folks are having to advocate against unnecessary procedures um, because a lot of the procedures that are done are not actually about function. They're about cosmetic, uh, you know, corrections, quote unquote, or making someone appear more normal. So, to and fit again, that quote binary. Unquote, exactly. Yeah. So if a, if a child is born and they're like, oh, everything points to this being you know, quote unquote, a girl, but this clitoris is really, really large. We're going to make it smaller. And so those are decisions that historically doctors have sometimes made unilaterally. Sometimes they've made it in in collaboration with a family. But then also, you know, what what was the family told about why the procedure was necessary or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a lot of different procedures that people are fighting against. Um, some are useful and important and saving. Um you know, there's a condition called hypospadias or hypospadias. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. That's fine. Um, English is my second language anyway. Um, where the the urethra sometimes is in unexpected places. And so some of those unexpected places can make it very difficult for someone to actually pee. And so there may be an, an intervention that has to address that. Um but that's not the same as, oh, this clitoris is just a little too large or this penis is a little too small. And so for intersex folks, a lot of it is in the domain of the body and the medicalization of it. Um, so that's, that's that piece.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting. You talk about all of these components that define gender into a binary of male or female. Mm-hmm. But that we don't look at any of those things except one. Yeah. When a baby is born and we decide you are boy, you are girl, mm-hmm. we look for penis there, penis absent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. That's basically what they look at. It's not like they're doing chromosomal tests. It's not like right. they're doing hormonal tests. It's not like they're doing an ultrasound to look for the internal genitalia. Right. It's if you see, and we, we actually, I don't want to say diagnose, we assign gender even before. Right. If you can see something that looks like a penis on an ultrasound, Y'all are having a boy and you can have your gender reveal party with your blue cake. Yeah. But if we don't see a penis, then, uh, you know, it's a yellow cake now. Yeah. Like, that's less sexist. Yeah.
2: All right. Still gendering, but cool. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So so that's um, intersex. So I think the old terminology we used to use just for so people make the connection would be hermaphrodite.
2: Right. Exactly. And that is still used for animals. We don't really use that. I mean, people are animals, sure. But we use that for for creatures that are not human, generally. (laughs) So that's still a term that you'll hear, but usually not in the context of people. Intersex is the preferred term and the the correct term at this point. Um, and again, here's the other piece. A lot of people don't actually know that they're intersex when they're born. A lot of people have their medical history um, shielded from them. There's a really wonderful organization called Interact that's uh, – mostly a youth organization but it's uh, a lot of intersex advocacy they do legislation they do education um, so i'd encourage people to check in about them and check in with them they're really great in terms of visibilizing intersex people and advocacy efforts um because honestly a lot of people just don't know until something happens right so sometimes people didn't even have surgery or anything like no one had any idea and they hit puberty and they're expecting to menstruate, but menstruation is not coming. And then they're like, actually, you don't have a uterus. Surprise. And so a lot of people just don't know until something else gets them into a hospital. And then they realize, oh, your chromosomes are different. Or, oh, you you don't you don't have this thing that we expected you to have. Or your hormones are different. And, and it's not something that they were raised with. Which is also why for some people it's less of a... Like personal identity that they hold for many years and it's something right. that is related to some kind of medical, medical space, yeah.
1: And it's more common than we realize.
2: Yeah, yes. There's a lot of, it's about as common as redheads or like 1 in 2,000 babies and so there's a lot of different um, statistics that are thrown out there. Bottled
1: redheads or? <laughs> I think non-bottled. <laughs> I think you have some red in there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I definitely have some red in there. Um, so yeah, Who honestly who knows at this point because there are many people who might be intersex and not no
1: never know yeah no uh, i've heard people find out much later in life as well yeah right it's not always a puberty yeah all right i'm gonna do really a lightning round here uh can you give me a definition of pansexual
2: yes attracted to all genders
1: excellent uh asexual
2: asexual someone who does not experience sexual attraction to others most of the time
1: uh and yet there's nuance A <laughs> yeah, there. uh, agender
2: someone who does not identify with having a gender or a an easily discernible gender
1: aromantic
2: someone who does not experience romantic attraction so you know i may want to have sex with someone but i may not want to be romantic and lovey-dovey with them
1: lovely um demisexual
2: someone who experiences secondary sexual attraction which means that they're probably not going to be uh, sexually attracted to someone that they don't already know very well. There's usually the attraction that comes after getting to know someone or after having some other form of connection.
1: And I think this is a very common one. Yes. It's
2: way more common and a lot more people are are using it these days because they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to just randomly – Like, generally, I'm not randomly attracted to people, but after we have a long-standing connection, then I develop sexual desire for them. Yeah, that would be, that would be classified as demisexual. And the same thing with demiromantic. If you're someone who doesn't experience romance after, until after a big connection, um, there's, you know, there's more debate around that one because you're like, well, isn't that how all romance (laughs) works? But for demisexual, I think it's a little bit easier to explain.
1: Right. And demisexual, I think a lot of people, it really resonates with them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Oh, let's do sapiosexual.
2: (laughs) So sapiosexual, much contested term uh, because of its potential for ableism within it. Uh, So sapiosexual is a term that some people use when they say that what they're attracted to or what gets them sexually attracted to someone is the person's intellect, which again, right, if we want to apply an oppression or social justice, we're like, oh, that could be a problem. If again, that's if you're if you're basing your sexual desire on a person's intellect, what does that mean actually? And
1: what what is intellect because <laughs> right. <laughs> I said at the beginning that, that you know they're so bright, but yeah. there're lots of different types of bright as well.
2: Right. Exactly. There's a lot of different kinds of intelligence. So with with some of these words, right? The thing that I would ask people to consider is what about this term feels important to you? What about this term can be harmful to other communities? And how and where are you using it like why why does this one feel correct so if someone says oh I want to use sapiosexual because a a mental connection is the primary and only thing that I feel attraction to that might be a little bit different and might make sense for them Um, but I would I would just encourage just a question like oh if it's intellect why why is that the thing Um, and what would it mean if someone has a higher or lower intellect what is the low intellect for you what does that mean
1: Right. And, you know, sometimes I worry about it reeking of kind of elitism. Right. 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 Because do we have a term for attraction to money? Right. Because people <laughs> are far more judgmental of that than yep. they would be of intellect.
2: Yes. right, no.
1: or, or even aesthetic beauty. We tend to be quite judgmental of people who see aesthetic beauty right. as something very important. But intellect is, for many of us, something we're born with. mm. Right? So we judge people who just make money on their looks. Well, there are people who just make money on their ability to memorize things.
2: Right, exactly.
1: So, so be it. And I like the way you're going through these. I feel like I should have made it a Jeopardy round. <laughs> I'm not that complex yet. We're lucky we have microphones. Yeah, yeah. Well, right?
2: With, with sapiosexual, actual real quick too... Um, One thing that I also want to name for folks who are listening is sometimes you use a word and it makes sense and sometimes you stop using it because it stops making sense for you. So for a while I was like, oh yeah, sapiosexual, that's totally me, like that fits because I care a lot about a mental connection with people and then I realized, you know what, the way that that word is sometimes used in elitist context and ableist context means that I don't actually want that term for myself anymore. And I don't like it anymore. So I'm not going to use it. And I can still very easily share that, hey, a mental connection is really important to me without using that terminology. So it's okay if your words change. It's okay if there are words that you use for yourself and now no longer use for yourself. That's okay.
1: So, so to wrap up, tell, let's just, um, I'd like to close on with a final thought around why this terminology is important. And as you said, you don't have to memorize it, but why is it important to engage with new terminology and pay attention to the way language evolves and, as you said, be open and curious? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, so much of this is tied to people's dignity, people's self-worth, people's self-esteem. So these are words that can really help someone feel seen and feel safe and like they're cared for. At the same time, if we use them wrong right they can make people feel unsafe uncared for invisible and so part of this is about human dignity and human rights part of this is because labels give us a a rallying cry they give us a a banner to stand under and build community around and community is crucial for social mobilization for political change for just living right just making a community so that you can survive and thrive um, particularly if you don't have biological family or you don't have a cultural community otherwise um, that can be really important so it's it's about mental health it's about political power it's about social change. It's not just, oh, people are just trying to be special, right? And that, and that kind of argument, I think, gets used a lot for, for terms that are newer. Like, oh, that's so complex.
1: For people who already feel special. Right, exactly. So th- it's, you already have your normal. You already have recognition. The things that people are fighting for are things that you were handed right, on a silver platter. So it's easy to say, oh, they want to be special.
2: Yeah, usually it's like, oh, we would just like some equal rights. That would be nice. That would be mm-hmm. how delightful that mm-hmm. would be. Um, like
1: access to medical care yes access to education access to using a bathroom yes well
2: and that's the thing that these terms so often mean that people are kept out or in of certain things so if you don't use a certain term sometimes you don't get access to certain tests right i worked with departments of health in the u.s where based on the forms that a person fills out if they fill out that they're female or that they're male they will be given different counseling options for sti testing or they'll be given different um tests for for you know are we going to check this body part this body part this body part they'll get a pregnancy screening if they're if they're said to be oh you're female um and that's where it also gets messy working with electronic medical records and with doctor and doctors and hospitals because i could check the box female that doesn't mean i have a uterus for so many reasons i could be someone who was born female And had my uterus removed, I could be born female. And, you know, there's so many different reasons that that can kind of go wrong anyway. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the ways that I'm educating providers is, look, give people the options and explain it to them and let them make the decision that works for them. They can help you a lot of times with all of this with pronouns and and names and terms. We get really flustered because we feel like we have to know all the answers and know them by ourselves, which is another rant I could go on, but will not... um, we don't actually have to put all of that work on ourselves right it's it's our duty to educate ourselves but when we make meaning we usually make meaning together we don't make meaning by ourselves for everything so it's okay to collaborate collaborate on that sort of thing and you know if someone says i'm queer you may have an idea but maybe it may might make sense to ask them especially if you're trying to have a sexual or romantic relationship with them what does that mean for you
1: Right, and, and same thing for medical care. Like, we yes. think about like, your most fundamental needs being health care. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: doctors often asking questions like, oh, are you still married?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When they decide whether or not I need a specific STI test. Right. Married, that's just a piece of paper. Right. Right? Like, there's <laughs> there are other questions that they should be asking. Like, have you had any new sexual partners? Right. Uh, and so the language, but it has to do with their own discomfort. Mm-hmm. Right. A lack of training, obviously. Yeah. But it's more—it's easier for people to ev- avoid even saying the word sex. Right. And these are the physicians that are about to put a cold metal spectacle up my vagina. Yep. <laughs> I, I would like you to be able to say the word sex. I'd also like you to remember the screw. Because my first pap smear, yeah. they forgot the screw. I was uh, I was like 14, yeah, 15, yeah. Already super uncomfortable. Yeah. And she was like, oops, I forgot a screw. I'm like, I'm That's like, definitely
2: the word I want to hear. I'm never going to do this
1: again. Yeah. Well, this has been really helpful. I think it's going to be helpful, not just to Brandon, but to listeners, certainly helpful to me. So thank you so much. Can you tell me, Ida, where can folks find you?
2: As long as you have my name, it's upsettingly easy to find me on the internet. (laughs) So pretty much everywhere, if you just Google my name, um, I'm Neuron Bomb on Twitter. I'm Aida Mandule on Instagram and on Facebook and pretty much everywhere else. My website's also aidamandule.com. So as long as you got my name, you got it.
1: Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And thank you to Desire Resorts for
2: their support of this
1: podcast. Once again, I'm going to be down at Desire in October of this year and January of next year. I don't really want to talk about 2019 (laughs) yet, but they have a couple of clothing optional couples resorts on the Mayan Riviera just south of Cancun. Brandon will be joining with me, so check them out at desire resorts thank you so much to you for listening we release a new episode every friday morning wherever you're at have a wonderful week
2: you're listening to the sex with dr jess podcast improve your sex life improve your life